Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. Welcome to episode number 29, where we have a return guest and Mr. Tim Kelly, the host of Our Interesting Times. And so his return appearance now evens it out, as I've been on his show a couple times, he's been on mine a few times. So we've achieved an equilibrium of sorts, and that is a key theme in esoteric Freemasonry, the idea of equality, equilibrium, balancing out opposites. But how do you define that process? What are the distinctions and the details and the elements which you are balancing? And we will discuss this in relationship to the Masonic wasp powers, balancing itself to be equal with the Catholic Church's universal mission, with their own universal mission of democracy, and trying to utilize the church to push this agenda. So this focus will be on the 20th century machinations that were engaging in this plan and of which the Cold War was one of the main campaigns to try to unify or equilibrate the church with American democracy. And I am woefully inadequate to understand all of the things going on within this program or agenda, but that's why we have Mr. Tim Kelly on because He has absorbed way more information on this than I have, and so we will discuss things like John Paul II, the Cold War, Henry Luce, his wife Claire Booth Luce, the Dulles Brothers, and all of their relationships to the WASP establishment, and even perhaps secret societies like skull and bones, and the numerous fraternities associated with these elite WASP universities. We'll also talk about things like Operation Gladio, the P2 Lodge, and other odd connections that seem to balance out this opposition of left and right, liberal and conservative, or old and new. And they all seem to unify in their subversion, infiltration, and taming of this alleged beast of the Roman Catholic Church by the Liberty Goddess of Masonic Democracy. All right, welcome back to another P2BP episode, and we have a returning guest, Mr. Tim Kelly. And Tim, thank you for being back on the show. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me on. So how are things going with your podcast? Um, I'm sure most of our audience is familiar that you're the host of Our Interesting Times. Do you have any updates or news regarding the show? I know you had some censorship problems a little while back. Uh, you know, wonder what happened there and how have you adapted to that? Well, I, I no longer post entire shows on YouTube. I just I promote it on YouTube. So there's no content on YouTube anymore. But I use that to promote, uh, provide links to where my show is, is is posted. Well, I don't have to worry about uh, censorship yet. Yeah, I resorted to that uh, just for a little while 
um, a couple years ago, but luckily I've been okay for the most part. So knock on wood here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so there's certain, you know, things you can, you can't talk about and certain groups you can talk about and certain groups you can't talk about, uh, at least for any extended period of time. I, it's a sporadic on YouTube because I, something stands, it's, it appears arbitrary. Uh, it's, you know, it, in my case, it's probably an algorithm that catches it. You know, I don't think, uh, they have a person following me. I don't think I have a, you know, like a case, you know, officer assigned to me. I think it's all <laughs> this, it's automated artificial intelligence, uh, you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, the, the recently, of course, the past, you know, six, seven weeks, I've been talking about the coronavirus, uh, a so-called pandemic, uh, scandemic, plandemic, the operation that it's, that it, it clearly is at this point. Um, and so most of my material has been uh, spent covering that, uh, trying to expose it, get as much information as possible uh, to hopefully, uh, if there's a, a wider awareness or consciousness about what's going on, uh, this thing can be curbed or stopped before they impose a, Bill Gates gets to impose this technocratic slave state on us all and his mandatory vaccines and his digital tattoos and you know, are the uh, immunity passports and the mandatory testing and the 24-7 surveillance that we're told that's being imposed to keep us safe from a virus that has, has now shows to have a metallic rate of that of the average flu season, if that. Yeah, and I think that uh, anytime I watch uh, one of your shows or I go to your uh, episode on YouTube, whether it's a link to something else, you always get the Wikipedia entry for whatever <laughs> is <laughs> below, you know, for the coronavirus or Freemasonry or whatever it might be. Yeah. They always seem to be attached to your videos. <laughs> yeah, they like to uh, give us the official narrative of these things. Like if you talk about JFK or talk about 9-11, they're there to provide us the official narrative of these things, which, um, you know, something like JFK, I think as many as two thirds to 70 percent don't don't by the official narrative, yet it's promoted. And at 9-11, you're probably dealing with maybe a third of the public is skeptical at this point. Um, so, but yeah, they're kind enough to provide the official narrative. <laughs> well, you can use it as a badge of honor, I suppose. <laughs> so I guess uh, today we're going to talk a bit about uh, the 20th century in particular and relationship of the American empire to the Catholic church. And I guess before we begin... I'll just ask you, being a Catholic, what are your current views on Catholicism? Is the Novus Ordo valid? Is Francis really the Pope? For the record, I say yes to both of these, despite the horrible mess that's attached to each of them. But I certainly sympathize with all the other groups and everybody who takes issue with the Catholic Church in these days with all these difficult situations. But where do you stand on all these things, just so everybody can kind of uh, know where you're at and you can give any disclaimers you'd like before people make assumptions. <laughs> well, uh, you know, Pope Francis has certainly made uh, things interesting for Catholics, particularly those Catholics who see themselves as being more traditional uh, or more orthodox or conservative. It's a, um, uh, yeah, I think he's Pope, just a, a, not a very good Pope. In fact, perhaps a bad Pope. As you know, we know in history, there's, there's been more than a few. His papacy, um, I think, um, who knows what God's intention is for this, but maybe uh, it's in the end, it's, it will pr uh, precipitate a, a crisis, uh, which will, uh, you know, bring about good, which is what God does with things, I suppose. Um, the, I mean, he is a Jesuit, and um, right now the Jesuit order is problematic, I think, how it's 
currently, uh, uh, you know, basically how, how it exists today. I think it's definitely a fifth column within the church now, a sort of a globalist, modernist fifth, fifth column that's uh, promoting uh, heresy and hurting the church. And now is the time it really should be dispersed. As you know, whereas back in the 18th century, it shouldn't have been. Um, but we, you know, obviously what we've seen lately, uh, with the Catholic Church, not only in America, but also in Europe, their response to the, the so-called uh, pandemic has been nothing short of scandalous. I think it verges on apostasy when they've closed down all the churches, particularly just uh, during Holy Week of all times. And that timing, I don't think, is coincidental. Um Right now, we we have a, a clergy which doesn't see itself as being uh, outside or opposed to the state. Perhaps this is the rotten fruit of Americanism and uh, idea that the um, the church and the state um, not only are they separated, but the church forms a completely subordinate role to the state and actually becomes subsumed by it. I think that's what we're seeing with the with the Catholic Church today. It's a uh, becoming a through the papacy of Pope Francis, it's it's been further further infiltrated and become a tool of globalism, and that's something that's very disturbing. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go to church. Of course, they've denied us that, haven't they? And so, this willful denial of the sacraments to to the flock, I think, is an act of apostasy and betrayal. We have a, a priest and bishops that don't think they have to question or challenge the state. And they're very naive or they're very corrupt. Either way, the, the Catholics are being denied the, uh, the, the sacraments. And the spiritual results of that, I think, are, 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 are awful. There's been some more stronger voices in opposition to all that within the church, but there's very few of them. And uh, there's not that many in America, I've noticed. And that's kind of the point of our topic today, dealing with the American empire and its strange relationship to the Catholic Church or people being Catholics in America. Once I started looking more into the history, it made a lot of things make sense in terms of my own life, my own upbringing, things that have been kind of hidden from me. Well, I mean, yes. So yes, my set of vacantism. And of course, it's a problem with that is it's it, it, it says that the, the um, chair of St. Peter is empty since the death of Pius XII, I believe. Uh, there hasn't been a legitimate pope since then. And to that position, what it says is that the um, Jesus' commission to the church and his, his promise that the gates of hell should not prevail against it wasn't true. And so that undermines the entirety of, of Catholicism. So there's something wrong with that. Now, that said, I wish I wish the chair – looking at Francis, I wish the chair of St. Peter was empty right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we have, we have the strange position of the you – know, Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, you know, and so the church created this ambiguity now, you know, when they, when, when uh, uh, Benedict resigned in February 2013. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough time. There have been tough times in the past. And so this isn't anything really unique in history in, in the sense that there's always been troubled times in, in the church. Um, but uh, this recent, again, I think the, the crisis the coronavirus, which I think is largely a, um, a, a contrived crisis, um, the church has not, uh, I think, uh, ex, uh, come come out looking very good in this, because they immediately closed all the churches without any questioning. You know, it's been voluntary, and the part of the Catholic Church has been it's been technically voluntary, and um, to this day, I think the bishops are still hiding under their beds right now, not saying anything. Yeah, and while the uh, liquor stores are open, and I think the Planned Parenthood's still open things like that. 
Yeah, basically, it ba- the going to the church has been relegated the, the equivalent of going to a baseball game or something. It just simply isn't necessary. You know, and, and, and we have a yeah, situation like in Illinois where you have a Jewish governor keeping the churches closed, <laughs> so, giving him the pretext of science to do it. You know, we have scientists now telling us when we should go to church because you know, they're scientists. Yeah, and they always get their numbers right. <laughs> yes, the scientists. Well, you know, like I said, science isn't an exact science. It's an art. And so, you know, so we get so we're off by a factor of a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand. No, it's modeling, right? It's modeling. You can wear a mask. You shouldn't wear a mask. <laughs> you know, well, if it looks good on camera, you wear a mask. So all of a sudden now everyone in Congress is wearing a mask. The White House, they're wearing masks. Even though Anthony Fauci completely contradicted him saying you shouldn't wear a mask. They don't work. They actually spread disease. They creates a septic environment for disease. You know, the pores in the mask are larger than the, uh, the droplets of the virus, the, uh, if it exists at all. And so, but, but it's, it's an important act of, uh, of public humiliation and, and, uh, I guess, um, subservience to the, to, to, the, to the PSYOP because people wear a mask. They're literally muzzled from speaking to each other. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, sort of, um, everyone looks yes. like an animal or a dog with a muzzle. And I think that's, in my opinion, a result of a lot of these enlightenment principles, which basically in its philosophy reduces man to an animal. And then mm-hmm. if everything becomes very pragmatic to achieve whatever those goals might be. Um, you can see how that is built in opposition, not only the church, but also has this contradiction that's kind of built into America and perhaps we just see it manifesting over and over and over again, where we all live our lives in a contradiction in many ways. And I'm, you know, I'm very guilty of this myself and trying to pull myself out of it a bit, but I think that our conversation today can kind of flesh out where a lot of this really took over the church in a very heavy way yeah. in the mid 20th century. And, and, and back, I'm sorry, harping on this because it is, that's on everyone's mind now, because I think it's a continuing crisis. They can go many different directions at this point. This could be the apocalypse, if you will, the, the final battle is if you give into like wearing masks, you're giving into the idea that there's a unique virus out there that we can no longer have gatherings. We can no longer go to church. We can no longer have political rallies or, or protests. And this, what it does is it destroys the right to free assembly, peaceful assembly, and it destroys the right to free exercise of religion, all under the guise of a public health crisis, which, again, at this point, um, isn't unique. There's no really unique crisis out there. It's just uh, something that they've hyped. If they hadn't hyped it, people wouldn't be aware there, there was even a problem out there. You know? uh, but the church, the, the church authorities, the other uh, hierarchy, have given a free pass for the political authorities to shut everything down. And to me, that's almost like the reduction ad absurdum of Americanism of itself. Like the culmination of it. Yes. Well, I think uh, I'm not really super well versed in this area. And that's why I had you on. Um, and but I do know that one of the common criticisms or, or the accusations of sort of luring the church into Americanism is the Cold War and the fight against communism and then. Pope John Paul II being kind of one of the people spearheading this alliance. So for you, I would ask, is this idea of the the church uh, aligned against communism with America, is this something that you were brought up to believe or believed in yourself? Um, and how has that perspective shifted over time? 
And do you still think there's some general truth to that narrative, even if it's mixed in with some darker components or compromises that have been ill-fated uh, for the church in general? Well, um, the Cold War. Uh, we have to go a little further back in the history, and that's the, the, the 20th century and the Catholic Church in the United States, where uh, Catholics did very well materially in, in the United States, particularly the Irish coming relative to their experience in Ireland. And what happened was, and this is something that the, the church was aware of at the turn of the century, uh, Leo XIII wrote about this, and it was actually uh, first, I think, addressed in um, Syllabus of Errors by Pius IX. The, uh, and they were dealing with the general issues of materialism. Uh, you know, this is the era of Darwinism, and so the church is trying to address these things. But the notion that the, um, the American system was the ideal system of separation of church and state. And so how does the church relate to that? And this was something that was developed um, before the Cold War. Actually, the sec the, the, it was uh, just before America's entry into, into the Second World War in 1941, uh, the American century. And I think it was an article that written by Henry Luce. Of course, he was the editor uh, or uh, the head of the Time Life Media Empire. There was Time Magazine, uh, Life Magazine, later on Fortune, Sports Illustrated. Um, but this publishing empire... And at the time, that was the primary vector for, you know, basically for uh, propaganda for the American state. But, you know, radio was well established. It was growing. But this, of course, this was a, a decade uh, before television. He came up with the idea that um, I guess it was his uh, just coincided with Franklin Delano Roosevelt's The Four Freedoms. That was America's job as basically become the arsenal of democracy and spread American ideas of freedom around the world. And this time it was fighting fascism in Europe, Nazi Germany, Italy, uh, you know, fascist Italy, and also Japan in the Pacific, the, the Axis powers. Of course, they, they were defeated in 1945, and all of a sudden the, the new threat was our erstwhile allies, the Soviet Union. And now the communism became the, the international threat to freedom. And so um, – but if you look what happened with you know the Catholic Church, particularly you know in Rome, was caught between you know sort of this pincer between – the communists and the fascists. Um, of course, the Americans were allied with the communists during the war. In fact, that alliance was further back because, although it wasn't official, uh, the creation of the Bolshevik state was largely financed by the Western powers, Anglo-American banking interests, particularly Jewish interests. And you can go why that was the case as part of the sort of ethnic uh, animosity, uh, antipathy towards Russia by many powerful Jews, uh, people like um, Jacob Schiff. Uh, but also uh, the Rothschilds' long-term geopolitical interest, which really, uh, they, by that time, they had taken over the British Empire. And there, this goes into the McKinder Doctrine and the uh, strategies of Great Britain and its idea of uh, how do you control the world? You have to control the the continental powers if you're the sea power. But that's a digression. Um, but anyway, the, the Anglo-American powers and those Anglo-American powers after the war became the Anglo-American Zio powers. At this point, the, the Zionist powers might have been the junior partner. But they were uh, gradually uh, increasing their power, sort of inveigling themselves. And this would come um, uh, uh, by the late 70s, I think, the WASP elite leadership was on the – the WASP power elite were on, was on the wane, and you had the rise of Jewish power in the late 70s in, in the United States. And then we're seeing that today. Um, but anyway, back to the Cold War is, uh, you know, as you – if you're familiar with the broad history of the Second World War, is it created the conditions for the Cold War because it brought the Red Army into the heart of Europe. This was a um, direct uh, consequence of the uh, 
uh, of the uh, unconditional surrender policies that were established Tehran conference in 1943. So if you destroy German power, you're going to create a vacuum that's going to be filled by Soviet power. And this was in, would, would create the Cold War, the Iron Curtain and these things. Now, we're told through history that this was just something unforeseen, that Stalin became, you know, no longer was cooperative and he, you know, he, he, he uh, wanted to conquer Europe. So then the necessity for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the uh, constant presence of American forces to hold back the Red Army. So we had our Cold War. Um, and so the, you know, what happened was, uh, in Italy, I think it was in the, in the forties, they were holding f the first free elections, the post-war era and the CIA, which at the time sort of stretching its legs or was, was just a fledging organization at that point, which had grown out of the OSS, but they had, um, uh, made sure that, that the uh, Christian Democrats would win the elections over the leftist coalition government, which included communists. And so the CIA was brought in to sort of rig that election. And the Catholic Church was told either, if you don't help us out, the communists are going to win. Look what the communists were doing. And you can understand the fear because what the communists had done in Eastern Europe, um, you know, in, in uh, uh, so in Poland, uh, you had the cardinal that was, you know, was mentally tortured and put, you know, put in prison. And of course, this would also uh, inform the papacy of John Paul II in the 1970s. And it, this, uh, Alliance he had with Reagan and Thatcher to to, to win the Cold War, as we're told. Um, so the, the the Catholic Church itself um, was given a choice: either support the West and freedom, or communism and slavery. And they sort of begrudgingly cho chose the West as the lesser of two evils. But instead of sort of seeing this as a sort of a a practical compromise, given a, a perilous situation, uh, the, the Catholic Church was also uh, targeted by the CIA. And this was what David Wemhoff writes about in his book. John Courtney Murray, Time Life, and the American Proposition, how the CIA's the kind of warfare program changed the Catholic Church. Uh, I've interviewed Mr. Wemhoff a couple of times, and that book is a, is probably one of the most important books of the uh, of the last 50 years. It tells you know what happened to the Catholic Church and what's happened to the world, because the CIA uh, per, uh, directly targeted the Catholic Church for infiltration. And how they did that uh, was to agents like um, uh, John Courtney Murray who came to prominence in the 50s, in the late 40s, 50s, and, and early 60s, largely because of the patronage of Henry Luce, who was, again, the header, the lead of Skull and Bones, head of Time Life. And if you know anything about the CIA and OSS, that ties back to Skull and Bones. So getting back to this uh, rather elite group of wasps at the time, which controlled the, the American, you know, the American elite at the time, Yale and Harvard and these things. And they were dedicated to the Cold War, and they saw the Catholic Church all churches, rather, as needing to be infiltrated and sort of brought on board the Cold War agenda, and the church being the most the, the largest religious institution with us with the most international reach, you know, having parishes throughout the world, it was particularly important to bring the Catholic Church on board, and they did that through funding, like I said, John promoting John Courtney Murray's liberal ideas, and also even universities like Pro Deo University in Italy promoting American ideas of free enterprise and capitalism, um, and also the idea. That the American state, the system of separation church state, was ideal, and the uh, the confessional state uh, was now passe, was no longer valid in the modern era, and the church endorsed, you know, basically the Freemasonic uh, Republic of the United States, and there was a huge, I think, intellectual infiltration of the Catholic Church, and there's some other darker examples of infiltration too. One would be the sexual corruption of the clergy, and largely done at the behest of um, Jewish and also CIA uh, assets in the in the 50s and 60s. And of course, we saw that in the 1970s 
uh, and we're seeing how that culminated in scandals of the uh, you know early tw- aughts, uh, right after the year 2000, where all these scandals broke, like in Boston. And it wasn't just something that just happened. It was a product of decades and decades of not only infiltration of the Catholic Church, but a broad psychological warfare that was waged on the entire West that we call the sexual revolution. So what do you think about Pope John Paul II? Because you mentioned that obviously there's a real tragedy and threat with, you know, everything happening from the Bolsheviks and everything that that stemmed into. Where do you uh, stand with all that? Because some people are very upset at his ecumenism and things like that. And then some people are more sympathetic because he came out of that area where a lot of that was going on or that threat was legitimate and real. Um, so, so what do you think about him? Is he somebody that was manipulated or because of everything he went through kind of went down that ecumenist path because of an idealism to prevent what he had already seen? And it was a traumatic thing, a reaction to the trauma that perhaps was a little bit more uh, short-sighted or ill-fated and there was a compromise there, but the intention is understandable. Or do you think perhaps there's more of a dark compromise attached to him and a bit more of a knowledgeable participation in New World Order agendas and Quran kissing? And I'm wondering, because I don't really know a lot about him other than the buzz or debate around these topics, and I'm not sure what I really even think about it, I'm probably more in the middle with it, I suppose. But what are your thoughts? Um, I have no particular insight whether it was something that was malicious on his part. I think it was sort of a psycho, uh, intellectual and, and then therefore ultimately theological corruption. I mean, that grew out of, uh, I guess, um, his ecumenical reaches uh, or as an attempt to sort of create a broad coalition or understanding. But that can easily be corrupted. And he did, I think, he didn't he go into a, a mosque, which popes are not supposed to do? Yeah, that's usually the the big yeah. issue that most people yeah. have. And oh, of course, we see it today with the Pope with that was that South American idol, Huchimama. You know, yeah, Huchimama. I, you know, <laughs> you know, I thought it was like I thought it was like a you know, a Pokemon or something when I first heard it. <laughs> but um, well, there'll be a Pikachu in the Vatican very soon, I'm sure. Yeah, Pikachu. They, they have cloud masks, so why not? Um. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. And the, what's her name? That what was that pop singer that went there, uh, Katy Perry. Probably, I'm not sure. I was talking about like transcendental meditation. Now I, you know, Katy Perry and transcendental meditation or something. I don't know. So you have that, and and this is sort of a, a sort of an ugly outgrowth, I think, of uh, dig, uh, dignitatis humanae. I guess would be this, sort of this idea, um, and also you know, of nostra aetate, of religious freedom. Uh, you know, the traditional teaching of the Catholic Church was error has no right. And what that meant was, uh, uh, you know, that basically uh, you have no right to proselytize. And of course, uh, if you have a Catholic country, that country that is a Catholic state, you can, you know, but the church condemned those things like uh, Franco's Spain or something where they sort of, uh, the church sort of abandoned Franco. And then when Franco died, they instituted a liberal constitution, religious freedom. And now you see what's happening in Spain. They have gay, gay pride rallies during Holy Week. And same thing in in um, in Portugal, um, but this is idea um, uh, just because you can respect people's right to act, to practice their own religion doesn't mean you have to celebrate it, or doesn't mean that you have to legitimize it the way you know this, that uh, John Paul II did. 
And uh, it, it is a, an, an interesting thing because basically what what he did was a violation or considered uh, a heretical act by previous popes. So there's there there you know so you have an example of 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 the sainted John Paul II doing that. And you can say what was his intent. You can interpret that, but yeah, it, it, again, it's a it's a product of the sort of the Vatican II, post Vatican II uh, Novus Order Church, where you water everything down. Church of Nice, uh, the Church now announces uh, that it no longer needs to uh, proselytize Jews, which means that you know the Church's official teachings is the only way through Christ is through, you know, salvation is through the Church. Now, if you tell people that they can attain salvation without being Catholic, why bother to proselytize? Why convert? Um, and so you have this weakening of the church and sort of this, uh, 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 in the post Vatican, Vatican II era, which sort of left the field open, you know, for the cultural warfare that was waged by other parties or interests, you know, uh, and so, uh, and, but then, you know, you have the psychology of John Paul II, who, uh, you know, it's Carol Watia, he was in Poland and he experienced both the German and Russian occupations. So he was very easily moved to help, you know, things like um, groups like um, Solidarity in Poland, which was financed by, you know, say money going through the Vatican Bank, being funded. The, the the source of these funds can be traced back to uh, gun running and, and the international narcotics trafficking. And so you can see how these intelligence operations, the church can be brought along. You saw this with the Vatican Bank scandal and Bishop Marcinkus. And the um, this gets into sort of propagate uh, the P two Lodge, and uh, and also the um, who's that guy who was hung out at Friars Bridge, the guy who ran the Banco Ambrosia, uh, Calvi Roberto Calvi, uh, nineteen eighty two, um, and this gets into some of this, the the question regarding the death of John Paul the first, of course, which is a short uh, his papacy was a mere thirty three days, interesting enough, and some people think he was poisoned. Uh, given, you know, uh, uh, a drug, give him a heart attack. And that's, of course, that cleared the path for John Paul II, uh, who was less reform-minded. So what do you think, um, I know you mentioned some of the, the WASP figures, Henry Luce. Um, maybe we could just focus on that little click for a bit. Um, there's the Dulles brothers involved. And uh, Henry Luce, you said, was a, a bonesman? Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah, I, I, didn't yeah. know, I didn't realize that. That's interesting. And uh, the other thing I was going to mention just real quick, I don't know if uh, I ever talked about this when I was on your show, but I, I found out that um, Carl Jung was a member of the OSS under Dulles. Um, and we talked about all the weird Carl Jung symbolism yes, in the yes. JFK assassination. So I don't know what to think about that, but I just found that very interesting that he was agent number 488 under uh, one of these Dulles brothers. So um, what is, uh, can you elaborate on their role in all of this? The Dulles brothers, Dulles brothers, and Luce, maybe just to give a little bit more yeah, background on that. Right. Well, they I weren't skull and bones. I think Adela, Adelis himself went to uh, um, uh, that New Jersey University. What's it, Princeton? And he was a member of some. I think uh, it was a scroll and key or something over there. But um, uh, he, um, he was, I think, the the nephew of, of Robert Lansing, who was the Secretary of State for Woodrow Wilson. And so, as a very young man, he grew up around these uh, things. But he, um, you know, of course, he was there at Versailles. Um, in 1919 in Paris. And he, he was actually, he's credited with um, debunking the uh, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is interesting, which then again, tent, 
uh, how valid is the, is the debunking if it's Alan Del- Dulles doing it? <laughs> so, um, Behemoth's brother, uh, you know, grew up um, uh, adjacent to power, um, and so they were. Uh, so they, uh, uh, you know, became very important Wall Street lawyers. Um, the their law firm was elite connected, um, and uh, it was Dulles who was, of course, a member of the OSS in Switzerland during war. He did negotiations with SS General Carl Wolf, and he was behind Operation Paperclip, uh, the sort of the transporting of, of Nazis west, as, uh, the, sort of this pipeline of Nazis to escape west who would then come in and, uh, 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 you know, uh, sort of populate our post-war intelligence agencies, uh, you know, like um, – uh, General Ge- Reinhard Galen, who was head of the e- German intelligence in the East, would form the, the Soviet desk, you know, it, within the OSS and CIA. And so you wonder why we had a Cold War. <laughs> um, but um, it was the, they also utilized the Vatican for this as well, uh, uh, allegedly for the, for this pipeline. Uh, a lot of bribery and money trains changed hands. Of course, uh, uh, Dallas would also make off or at least, at least uh, uh, broker handle a lot of the plunder. From World War II with the Swiss bank accounts, that's very murky now. Uh, but that was his background. Uh, well, what was their law? What was that law firm again? The Dulles Law Firm. I am not sure. Dulles Law Firm. Yeah, you know, I know the name. He's name tip on my tongue. Uh, look it up real quick. Sullivan and Cromwell. There we go. Yeah, Sullivan and Cromwell. That's very important. Thanks, Sullivan and Cromwell. I knew it. Um, the important of that is Sullivan and Cromwell was a well-connected Wall Street uh, law firm which represented corporations. And it was these corporations, people like Dulles, Robert Lovett, and these, they would form the nucleus of uh, not only the SSS, uh, OSS, but the CIA. And so this relationship between corporate America, high finance, and intelligence agencies was there at the beginning. Um, and so the sort of incestuous, untoward relationship between between big business and government, which you could see in the Spanish-American War, even as far back as the American Civil War, uh, was sort of consummated in 1947 with the National Security Act. And it was the Cold War which created the pretext for this reorganization of America's intelligence and defense establishment. Um, and so this reorganized and created a permanent national security state, uh, what we have today, these alphabet soup agencies. Uh, uh, and the, it was the Cold War that created the immediate crisis for the and Dallas was there to set this up. And uh, I believe he wrote the report, was, uh, was, uh, was, was uh, important in organizing this. Um, in fact, I think he was um, expected, he was the speechwriter for Thomas Dewey in the 1940 election against Harry S. Truman. And Truman's victory, Tr- uh, D- uh, Dulles expected to be the first director of the, uh, uh, of the CIA. But it was uh, uh, Tr- Truman's surprise victory in 48 over Thomas Dewey, which means he had to put off his... Um, uh, put that off until Eisenhower became president in 1953. And that's when he assumed the directorship of the CIA in 1953 until he served until uh, uh, the spring of 1961, when, or I, th- I think maybe it was the summer of 61, when Kennedy eventually sacked him over the, the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Um, but it was those formative years that Dulles really uh, 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 oversaw the expansion of the CIA, not only you know, in its budget, but also its capabilities. Using sort of uh, bureaucratic, um, you know, uh, ingenuity to expand it, because technically speaking, say, wasn't really supposed to be engaged in these things, but he used broad language in the National Security Act to justify 
active, you know, sort of um, the fun and games branch intelligence. Instead of just gathering, collating and gathering intelligence from various agencies, CA became an active agency. And of course, we can see that in um, uh, on behalf of not not you know, under the cover of national security and fighting communism, but really it's always on the behalf of companies like United Fruit Company in Guatemala in 1954 or uh, for the uh, seven sister oil companies in 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 uh, in Iran in 1953, when they th- uh, staged a coup that threw out Mossadegh and installed the Shah, who reigned for their for another 26 years um, until the you know the 79 Iranian Revolution. Yeah, it's funny. You said the ambiguity. That's uh, you know one of those weaponized things that was utilized with Vatican II as well. So it's kind of the temporal version and the spiritual version. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you don't know how they like how this, this these former years, I think uh, Fletcher Prouty's book uh, is very good on that. Uh, the um, secret team, about the early days of the of the, um, of the CIA and how it really grew in, came to its own in the fifties and sixties, and why perhaps they were so shocked in the early in nineteen sixty two or sixty three when Kennedy actually challenged them and started acting like a president. Um, and this would uh, perhaps uh, contribute to his murder in. November 1963, uh, because CIA as well as other parties uh, all uh, have their hands all over that. Do you know much about the role of Avery Dulles in this? Because he was a Jesuit who became, you know, involved in high up in the Catholic uh, Church, was a cardinal, I think. So what, what do you know about him? Mm-hmm. He converted, apparently. Um, he said he converted looking at a tree one day, I think walking. Was it in Boston? Forget where he was. In, I forget where he was, but he said he, by just admiring a tree, he he decided to convert to. Um, he was sort of a um, agnostic, and he that's when he decided to become a Christian, particularly a Catholic. Uh, but his his rise to the Catholic Church is, is is interesting because given Brother John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of State and Alan Dulles head of the CIA, pretty much controlling America's foreign policy, both covert and overt, for their you know for a better part of a decade is, uh, and then have him become. A, a prince of the church eventually is somewhat suspect. I don't, he was doctrinally or rocks very conservative, but I, you know, like anything, uh, but you know, if you look at the issue of Americanism itself, uh, you know, figures like Avery Dulles and other princes of the, of the American Catholic church, like Spellman, um, word, uh, again, were, were un, they were, they were unequivocal Americanists at a time, you know, when the American empire was at its peak is particularly, you know, during the cold war. And so I, you know, that I have no uh, actually information on his actual any involvement in any like intelligence operations, other than perhaps a sort of an intellectual corruption of the Catholic Church, which was important because they had to keep the church online um, at that point. And this is also, you know, the fifties and sixties with a broad psychological warfare waged against American Catholics, particularly ethnic Catholics, with um, not only the um, the collapse of the production code and the corruption of American pop culture through move through uh, suburbia. And also racial integration, supposed racial integration, where they uh, brought in uh, blacks from the south to, to bust up like ethnic Catholic neighborhoods in the north to create suburbia, and therefore you deracinate these these Catholics, and they become sort of bland white Americans, which can easily be um, targeted and called racist as they are today. It's interesting you're saying about Avery Dulles that doesn't seem to be as many suspicious things mm-hmm. tied to him, um, and that might relate to. Henry Luce and uh, his wife, Claire Booth Luce, who was a famous Catholic conversion and tied to Fulton Sheen, 
helping to you know enable that. Um, so what is your viewpoint on her in relationship to her husband, who's a guy who's tied to, you know, the wasp New World Order side of the coin? Could this be more like a wheat and the tares thing? Is she just another agent of this or a dupe? What is your thought on her? Because she seems to be rather controversial, similar to what we talked about with John Paul II. Kind of hard to really understand what's going on there. What's your view on her role in all this, being married to this guy who's such a key figure in trying to subvert the Catholic Church? Yeah, there are um, people who think Claire Ruth Luce was a devout Catholic. However, uh, I read in a book uh, called The Irregulars, where apparently she had an affair with Roald Dahl, the British agent. Um, now that's what he claims. Um, so, um, he, he was sent, Roald Dahl, he's, you know, he was the, the famous author, children's stories, these things. He was a, uh, RAF agent who had gotten injured, I think during the battle of Britain and, um, then was sent over to work in William Stevenson's operation, uh, to sort of, um, get America into the war. And so he was just sort of this dashing RAF, RAF agent. Uh, RAF a pilot who came wearing his uniform and he was there to sort of pr promote the British interests and promote America's support for their war effort against Nazi Germany. And of course, ultimately get America into the war. And there's a broad, you know, during that time, during those desperate hours, uh, uh, 40, 41 with Britain, um, there was a broad cultural, you know, propaganda attempt at Hollywood. And of course, all the major news uh, outlets were on board with this. You'd, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, this was Sort of the sin qua non of his of his of his uh, administration in 1940-41 was to get America into the war by hook or by crook, and eventually he did do that. Um, but um, in that book, the Irregulars, it says that he was uh, uh, women were used to attract women were used to seduce uh, American uh, senators. Uh, I think Arthur, Senator Arthur Vandenberg was caught up in one of these things. But uh, Claire Ruth Luce apparently had an affair with Roald Dahl, which he claims. And of course, she was about 15 years older than he was. And someone asked him about that. He said, when, when, when doing this, he just thought of England. <laughs> <laughs> James Bond stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> James Bond stuff. Um, but, you know, she eventually became what the uh, American ambassador to Italy uh, in the 1950s, uh, I think under the Eisenhower administration. Of course, that's when um, Henry Luce goes there, I think gives his, gives his um, speech about... Um, uh, the American proposition. The American proposition is that uh, basically was that uh, the American ideals were the best. They were ideal for everybody, and they need to be expanded throughout the world. And this would expand markets and create sort of this homogenous free capitalist system throughout the world. And basically, traditional societies would have to uh, have to go away. And that's what ha had happened in Italy, but also we saw that happening throughout the world in, in the Cold War. You know, Coca Cola and the good life would be spread. You know where um, this was this was this was his speech. And of course, he was he's there visiting his wife as the ambassador to Italy at the time. So I don't know. I mean, who knows to what extent she was a faithful Catholic or not? I mean, I, I can't plumb her mind or what her intent was. It's like anything, it's probably ambiguous at the time because she probably thought she was doing good. I mean, it's very you can see how someone would think that their country is the best. Their system is the best. But there is an interesting quote in um, yeah, here. It is chapter four in, in his book. Um Claire Bruce Luce, American Catholics can succeed. Uh, she says that, you know, American Catholics, particularly Irish Catholics, have a uh, inferiority complex and they want to be accepted. You know, they work for the WASP elite and they want to be sort of have their place at the table. We see that with American Catholics today. 
uh, particularly those in political power. How they, you know, they just want to climb the pull the political power. And we see it with judges who are asked, you know, when you put your dogma aside and become a judge, you know, whereas if you're a Jew and you're appointed to the court, no one asks about the Talmud, you know, when you're being appointed to the court, can you put your, your, your beliefs aside? Um, but, um, oh, here it is. Um, in, the, in a letter to Bishop Fulton Sheen, the man she claimed was responsible for her conversion to Catholicism, Claire explained that the church was being harmed in America because it was implicated in the principles inimical to the faith, like religious liberty and disestablishment. Oh, I do not think I do not un understand how it is with the church in America, how sweet it is to be long last at the right side of the tracks and to be in the religious field, as one of my Catholic friends put it, and a real up and, a real up and comer. Oh, could it be that the church itself is beginning to be just a little bit like the rich young man? Men, I say, sh should not spend all their uh, novenas and so much of their life of prayer in her contemplation, not in times like these that call for eagles and lions and tigers of the Lord. Ravage the world with the truth of Christ crucified. This is a lush land of glittering corruption. No king but saints and martyrs can save us now. Um so basically, uh, demo David Wilhoff goes on to write, Claire was uh, under, understood the nature of America as being inescapably pragmatic. American Catholics spend little time trying to convert their neighbors and are always being bawled out by their priest for this lassitude, but they make up for it by contributing to the missions. <laughs> so basically, you know, you have the hierarchy, which are brick and mortar men, they have their churches and they, they do well. They, they grow very fat and soft in America as you ever shake a hand of a priest? It's very soft. Um, and this is the problem in, in, in the church in America today. That that quote is great, how basically, you know, she uh, was Catholic, but now she could be Catholic and have a seat at the table because of Americanism. Uh, whereas the proper position or, or I think pose for a Catholic should be outside the system seeking to convert as opposed to getting inside. But it's very easy to rationalize it. We go inside because not only can you, you tell yourself that you're having an influence, making a difference, but she's also getting rich in the process. Yeah, and I think I've read some quotes. I can't remember who, but you were mentioning some more current Catholic politicians. There was somebody talking about the history of anti-Catholicism in America, and they kind of blame themselves for it, where they'll say, you know, like the church has been pretty intolerant and, you know, that's a mistake. And the fear of Catholic immigration is warranted or justified because of that, and mostly referring to the 19th century immigration. But even though they'll admit that there were some bad persecutions of Catholics and stuff like that, they kind of exonerate the WASP establishment from it. And this is coming from Catholics. I've heard that before. And then, of course, look at the results of what's happened with that mindset or on the flip side, to justify their rise in politics and to be pragmatic like America inclines us all to do, they, they basically state, well, in order for us to get into politics to change this, we have to compromise with our beliefs. So it's kind of like a catch-22, but they're saying they don't really have much of a problem with that and that this is justified because they don't have the equal rights and the only way to get the rights is to compromise to get into power to change it and so it's ironically kind of like the justification of jewish rabbis giving to the conversos 
saying, oh, if you convert, then you'll get into the establishment, even if you're not sincere, and then you can survive and get rights that way by changing things from within. So that's the irony here. It becomes very much like the plight of the Jews when they didn't have the equal rights, whereas when the Catholics have that problem, there is this Americanist proposition, as you were saying, to basically engage in that same type of mindset or thinking. And then again, on the flip side of that coin, the idea of the Jews infiltrating or subverting mimics this in what the concerns are about the Catholics, where they're going to basically get into politics and make everyone, you know, a slave to a popish plot or a Catholic universal conspiracy or agenda or a Jesuit conspiracy, right? So it's kind of funny how there's a broad similarity for both the Catholics and Jews, except for the differences. There is a Jewish tradition with Christ and a Jewish tradition without him. So as I mentioned, there's those Catholics that sympathize with the wasps and think that, you know, there's a a reason to be suspicious of all these Catholics because they're going to try to subvert American democracy. And, you know, that's kind of like 19th century wasp propaganda. That's like a carryover. And, you know, it's it's just such a strange situation. Uh, And I was reading a book called Transatlantic Anti-Catholicism, and I was amazed that everything the WASP establishment projected onto the Catholic Church, the Church has kind of actually become that today, even though back then it wasn't, and that was part of the propaganda. But the WASP establishment completely inverted its conservative values that it was boasting of at the time. And now it actually embraces the Church version that it used to hate that it became. So there's this really grand irony it actually has become through the Jesuits. So back then they were accusing the Jesuits, and again, this is the 19th century Jesuits, very different, Mm -hmm. of being like these androgynous, effeminizing people who were, you know, uh, living with the savages or like hanging out in the Amazon, right? And that the savages were bad back then. Now, obviously, we have a very different viewpoint of the Native American cultures. But it's like everything that the Wasp establishment projected the Catholic Church to be, It wasn't at the time, and now this kind of Novus Ordo version or Americanized version has become what they accuse it of being in the propaganda during the 19th century, and at the same time, what the Wasp establishment in the 19th century boasted of being, which was a male hierarchy and the male's the head of the family, and that's just the great Christian life, where that's been entirely reversed, where everything is all feminism and the man can't be the leader of anything or it's just as equal as, you know, the, the woman's CEO or the, the modern family show and all that kind of stuff. And they haven't even measured up to their own criteria of what a progressive nation was back in the 19th century. So it's just so ironic how things had reversed to the complete opposite. And it's just all kind of a you know, reflecting this 20th century and this transmutation of it all. And so like the Catholic politicians, uh, quote unquote, it's interesting because they end up being the worst, you know, Podesta or Pelosi or Cuomo or all these figures that are such a huge problem in all of this. So is that a result of losing the faith? They actually become the biggest problem. Andrew Cuomo, who, oh, oh, you know, who's, who says that um, 
despite being Catholic, he was raised in the Talmud. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> wow. His father taught them these values. Tikumulani taught them these values. Now, I don't know if that's just pandering on his part, but you know, it, uh, you know, yeah, it's like E. Michael Jones says: is it's they, they, they are Judaizers when they embrace sort of the the Americanist system, the Americanism. And modernism is largely a, a Jewish outlook on life, which gets into sort of the puritanical thing, you know. But um, you know, the, you know, there, I think it was Mary Sleskind who says, you know, there's a book, Twentieth Century is the Jewish Century, and so it's, it's what, what he means by that is not people have converted to Judaism, but they've internalized the values of Talmudic uh, uh, Judaism, uh, post-Temple Judaism, and this is, was done largely through the you know. Sort of the taking take over the culture in the post-war era, you know, through the through cinema and music and these things, and um, and also through uh, usury. And this is the, goes in the uh, the financial system. That's another thing where the Catholic Church has sort of um, has abandoned its condemnation of usury, which has set up sort of this uh, economic system, this unsustainable system, which just accumulates increasing increasing amount of wealth in a smaller number of hands, which is what we're seeing today. And now it's. I think we're seeing fully weaponized in sort of this economic coup that we saw under the cover of the uh, COVID-19 no, pandemic. So kind of discuss the wasp side of the coin. I was wondering if maybe you wanted to get into some of the Catholic subverters or uh, Judases, perhaps uh, people like you mentioned, John Courtney Murray. Um, also, there's other folks that are popular names that come up uh in terms of the Jesuits, like Tailhard de Chardin. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody you wanted to mention in uh, particular to that or elaborate on those figures. Well, I mean, I guess uh, John Curtin Murray, who, uh, again, was promoted by Henry Luce in the late, in the late 1940s and sort of became a very a, a Catholic celebrity in the 50s. I think he put him on the cover of, Life, of Time magazine or, you know, get on the cover of Time magazine or somebody back then. Um, you know, up there with Marilyn Monroe and Adolf Hitler and Joseph, Joseph Stalin. But um, this is his idea. I think he wrote a book called We Hold These Truths. And this was idea that um, America, uh, if you hold to the constitutional principles and uh, idea of free exercise of religion and tolerance, and as the American state, uh, uh, you know, sort of remains good, then and it's a comfortable position for Catholics to be in. And his job at Vatican II, and this was with Dignitatis Humanae, was to um, get the Catholic Church to change its, its, its official position on these teachings of, um, of separation of church and state. Uh, again, up until then, the Catholic position was just sort of a practical uh, modus vivendi with such a system. It wasn't a, a, a promotion that it was ideal. And since then, we have popes, particularly Francis, saying you know, that the confessional state is no longer valid. Separation of church and state is ideal. And again, that is a complete contradiction of church teachings. It goes against you know, the confessional state, uh, and sort of an integral society. And we're seeing today the weaknesses of such a system that uh, how what that really does is when you create a situation of separation of church and state of tolerance for our religions, what it really does neuter religion because it just it just makes it something you do on Sunday and it, it frees it frees up the field for the oligarchs, private interest to control the system under the guise of freedom. And through uh, uh, psychological warfare and through uh, uh, NGOs or or, or, or and we're seeing a lot of talk about foundations now with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, how foundations and how their dominance of the media and education, how under the guise or the appearance of sort of heterodox freedom, they can control the agenda. 
And there's no, no institution that resists it, the corporate state, because the church has been effectively neutered because the church holds no uh, special power within society because there is no integralism in society to fight it. Whereas in a, in a Christian commonwealth or Catholic state, that wouldn't be the case. The church should be outside the state and equal to the state. It could wag its finger and control things. And we're seeing sort of the empty promises of a constitutional democracy or republic. Uh, we have all these uh, you know, uh, uh, parchment claims or promises of freedom, but we're, we're, as we're seeing today, those pr parchment pa uh, promises are meaningless. I mean, there's nothing to control the state when the church is uh, relegated to a subordinate and even a propagandizing agent of the state, which we're seeing today with the Catholic Church, particularly the American Catholic Church, uh, when it's actually there promoting out something like this, this operation, the COVID-19 operation. It's, it's, it's out there actually, it's part of the, part of the PSYOP. And that's what's most very discouraging. Um, but that John, go back to John Curtin Murray, was, he was promoted for these ideas. I mean, he became a celebrity. People knew who he was because Henry Luce controlled the media empire, which made him a celebrity. So it's one of these sort of these, these prefab celebrities, sort of these court intellectuals, he's sort of a court priest who's there to sort of um, uh, uh, legitimize the, these ideas in the eyes of American Catholics who were already, you know, uh, sort of bought into the American system because they're American Catholics, particularly Irish American Catholics. Um, and this, um, so this is at that critical moment in Vatican II when he was trying to get this changed. And he, although technically he didn't get it changed, what it did, did was he was able to have his ideas promoted by the media, media empire. <clears throat> and most people, again, most Catholics wouldn't read uh, the, the the church documents, but they would read the media coverage of it. And that's the same thing with Vatican II, the ambiguity of Vatican II, where it doesn't really say specifically, in fact, technically the Vatican II actually says you you have to, uh, uh, you know, protect traditionalism in terms of church and and how churches are designed, but it wasn't really enforced and didn't, we saw modernism and architecture in the 1970s take over. Same thing with the liturgy. But the, you, you could see you know, the devil's in the details, and I would say the you could say it was naivete, but the amb ambiguity creates the opportunity for the corruption. And the interpretation of documents like uh, Dignitatis Humanae and Vatican II would be controlled by uh, Masonic uh, outfits like the, uh, Henry Luce's media empire, Time Life. And they were going to control the agenda, which they did. And that's something that the church, remember Vatican II, the church was trying to deal with the modern world and deal with things, things like modern communication and these things. But uh, as we now know, that from the get-go, the uh, the, the council was infiltrated and manipulated. And what they didn't get technically on paper, they got after the fact with basically with the, with the spin or how it was interpreted in the media. What do you think are some good books along with uh, this John Courtney Murray book by David Wenhoff uh, that would help illustrate this or this infiltration or steering the narrative? Is there any specific ones you'd recommend? Well, from what I've read, um, a good broad history of uh, sort of America and um, Catholicism is Charles Colomb's book, Puritan's Empire. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Uh, and that's a, uh, that's a good one. Uh, but also uh, Solange Hertz, I think, wrote a book called A Star Spangled Heresy. She writes about this. She writes about that, I think. So that, that's that's a good book um, uh, on, on that uh, particular subject. Um, uh, but I do think sort of the... The most detail and the most, I think, uh, concise treatment of this, in a way, is the uh, is um, David Wellhoff's book. Because I don't think, uh, without reading that, no Catholic has a full understanding 
of where he is or where they are uh, right now without knowing that history. It explains so much. Another good book, I think, <clears throat> would be e. E. Michael Jones's book, The uh, Slaughter of Cities, and which is about uh, urban how urban renewal, racial integration was used in the uh, post-war era to bust up the eth ethnic neighborhoods. This was psychological warfare, social engineering uh, uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And also his book that predates it uh, is on the, um, it deals with Philadelphia, but it's John Coldner Kroll and the Cultural Revolution. And he gets into what happened uh, in Philadelphia in uh, the 1960s through the 1980s and the destruction of the Catholic neighborhoods there and the weaponization of racial integration. And basically how the Catholic, and this is a good example because it shows how the, the Catholic uh, hierarchy um, are completely unaware or at least un unable to cope with or address the reality of covert, covert uh, psych psychological warfare, covert cultural warfare uh, that are being, that the, uh, the American state, primarily through the, uh, the foundations uh, uh, used to uh, fundamentally change, sort of change the um, the operating system of, of the American empire. It, it's, it, they, it, they were able to uh, uh, inject these viruses uh, that had, that changed the culture, that turned us into sort of this degenerate uh, Masonic Republic we are today, which is so ripe for manipulation and so atomized that we, most people simply don't have the agency or the community to fight back against, um, you know, the state. The corporate state. I hear you. And it's it's interesting because so much of what you're talking about is just a modern version of what I've been reading uh, was happening in the French Revolution and Barwell's memoirs of Jacobinism. The difference is back then, mm -hmm. uh, the people who saw through this were the Jesuits. And during this time, they're starting to get all into the liberation theology, social justice stuff, it would seem, or at least there's a couple key figures here at Vatican II that are the Jesuits that are nothing like the Jesuits of old or people like Barwell. And so it's very sad to see it all going down, especially when people, they, they really don't want to see that ugly subversion and uh, the ill will of mankind, even though there's smiling faces. And I think that that is really largely a Masonic thing anyways, you know, this sort of like esoteric, exoteric agenda. And that's kind of part of the American culture where Everybody wants to believe that mankind is inherently good as long as he's given all the stuff to, you know, survive and there's no material uh, lacking. And obviously in our current state, I would say that is absolutely uh, being proven completely wrong. But that aside, uh, before we wrap up the first hour here, I was wondering if maybe you want to go through um, some key figures in Catholicism who you think spoke out and warned against such things and were... Uh, embodying the the traditional spirit of the church in spite of all of this subversion or people just being duped? Well, um, you have um, in the, the struggle between the Americanists and the, the, the traditional Catholics during Vatican II and in the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century, um, you have, I think it was Monsignor Fenton and uh, was one who warned against it. And you have figures like, uh, oh, what was his name? It's a Father Carroll who weren't against it. And it goes to the, the villains, you know, people like Malachi Martin, perhaps, <laughs> and uh, John Curtin Murray. Um, there's some uh, who are agents 
uh, Malachi Martin himself, I think some people suspect was the agent of Benai Breath. He's the one that got with tried to get the church to change his teachings regarding uh, the Jews and their responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in uh, Nostra Aetate. And um, he didn't get it, but it, uh, that he got sort of a, the church said that not all Jews are responsible for it, <laughs> which is self-evident because, you know, not the Sanhedrin and the and the followers of the Sanhedrin who crucified Jesus Christ. There were many Jews who didn't, and they eventually would, you know, they would become Christians. Um, but the, nevertheless, um, this, this set the, the pattern for the next few decades of the church reaching out, looking for dialogue, and the the Jews using it as a weapon against the church in their cultural warfare against the West. What about popes? Any particular popes warning of Americanism or modernism? Oh. Not since uh, not since uh, Leo the Thirteenth, I don't at least not in my, in my knowledge. To my knowledge, I mean uh, Pius Twelfth. I mean it really didn't. I mean I guess it didn't become a, uh, an issue that maybe uh, that was talked about a lot until after the you know after the Second World War. Although again, we do have Pope Leo the Thirteenth in the eighteen nineties writing about. It. I think his papacy ended in nineteen o two, writing about it. Um, but then you have you know Benedict. Uh, I think that was it. Benedict the fifteenth after that or fourteenth, but um then you have the first world war. There were some priests who wrote about this, and of course you have you know oh what was it, the Canadian priest, you know uh, the radio guy. Oh, uh, was it Coughlin? Yeah, Father Coughlin. You know who who was actually the church shut him down. So this yeah. is an example: the American church shut him down. The the Roosevelt administration made them do this. So much to free <laughs> speech. So much again. So much for this liberal de- democratic pr- uh, promises of free speech, right? His radio show. You know, they made them. He uh, he put pressure. The Franklin Roosevelt administration uh, made the Catholic Church. Uh, I think they shut his radio station down. Then they stopped delivering his like his uh, newsletter in the mail. And Father Coughlin, uh, being obedient, a uh, 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 priest, uh, stopped talking about these things. Uh, but you had priests like him, you know, who talked about you know, public interests, this stuff. He was he was uh, sort of like um, you know, he talked about, of course, the Jewish influence in the Roosevelt administration and. and uh, high finance and also ultimately getting us into the war, but he was he was shut down. So you did have priests that were willing to take these things on, but they they were eventually muzzled or marginalized. Yeah, and then you consider that the popes, you know, uh, leading up to World War II, they were dealing with a lot of crazy stuff going on in Europe. Not to mention the wars themselves. And this is something I talked about a little bit with Dr. Robert Sanjenis, and we were talking about geocentrism, where they kind of remove themselves from the cosmology argument during the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And you wonder if it has something to do with all the Masonic revolutions they were dealing with. So certain things are more preoccupying of your time than others, especially when you're, you know, fighting for your Catholic life in uh, Austria and Italy during those times. So, yes, I mean, I, at that time you had the papacy dealing with Mussolini and you had the Lateran Treaty and then you had the Concordat with, with Hitler and the sort of this uh, pragmatic, you know, uh, agreement with these regimes, uh, which were, you know, uh, somewhat hostile. Although I think, um, you know, I think that, uh, although looking back at it, people criticize the Catholic Church's relationship with these things, but what were they to do at that point? If in the broader understanding of these conflicts is that, um, any fathers, and, uh, if you look at both the first world war and the second world war, it wasn't just an example of, you know, Hitler and Mussolini wanting to take over the world. It was a conflict that was sort of, of stoked and created by the the banking interests, uh, but, and you really can't separate the Second World War from the First World War. 
Second World War, it wasn't just a culmination chron- you know, in, chron- in chronological terms. It was sort of a, 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 a culmination of a broad 30 years war waged against the Europe, the continental powers by the Anglo-American Zio interests, which, <clears throat> you know, which have been dominant since. And we see that struggle continuing today you know, vis-a-vis uh, uh, Russia and perhaps even China. But it's very murky and convoluted, and there are no good, clear good guys or bad guys in these things. And, 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 and what's really confusing is that the nation-state boundaries don't really mean much you know, at this point. It's, uh, it may, geographically, Russia may matter, but you know, Russia is very infiltrated, and they have no – it's not like you know, Russia good, West bad, or, or vice versa. It's, it's, the world isn't that, uh, that's, that simple or clear-cut, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think what you were mentioning earlier about the the church being in this predicament in those world wars, and then also at the same time, this um, idea of constitutional rights, but they happen to magically get bypassed or overlooked um, mm-hmm. often when it comes to Catholicism or people like Father Coughlin. And, um, you know, looking into the earlier stages of, um, you know, the... Uh, United States, you know, before the revolution, mm-hmm. it, it was basically any religion but Catholicism. Um, there was even, uh, I believe, uh, I forget the uh, the Mason's name, I think it's James Oglethorpe. He was involved in uh, blaming the uh, fires in 1741 on the Catholics. And then he was also involved in getting the first Masonic Lodge in Georgia called Solomon's Lodge. And when they had Jews coming into that community, uh, people were wondering, well, should we give them religious tolerance? And he yes. basically organized said, yes, we can give yes. them religious tolerance, just not the Catholics. <laughs> so here's a Mason doing that. But the funny thing is, too, there's another angle to this where uh, there's this propaganda of the West to try to conflate the Catholic Church with the Nazis a lot of the times, which is absurd if you actually look into it. But at the same time, nobody has a problem or nobody mentions, I should say, you know, the Zionist Jews working yes. with the Nazis to try to get establishments in Palestine, everyone will say, well, you can't conflate those things. Those things have nothing to do with each other, which is, you know, fair enough. But why are you trying to conflate Catholicism and its quote-unquote anti-Semitism under the religious or spiritual understanding with the, the Nazis' versions of that based upon, you know, the more pagan biological determinism? And so it seems that when it comes to the Catholic Church, they don't want to make the distinctions that would help exonerate it and they don't have a problem, you know, throwing all kinds of things into that muck to try to slander it. Well, part of that is sort of this, the course of the, the demonization of Germany that occurred in the 20th century, particularly in the Hitler period, which is sort of this cartoon, which I would suggest needs, you know, some serious revising or reconsideration or refining. Uh, it just simply isn't what it, we've taught it what it was. And and you know Germany had a huge Catholic population. They, they had a their culture, con, you know, their culture war in the, in the 19th century. Bismarck and sort of a, a, a Modus Vivendi was struck, which solved Germany's problem. Then Germany became this industrial giant, which had to be knocked down a peg or two. Uh, uh, Britain saw it couldn't compete with them economically. And then you know, I think it was um, was it Balfour who said you know was asked. Um, how do we compete? You know, how do we deal with Germany? Can't we just work harder and compete economically? And he, and he said, no, we just have to go to war with them. And this was in the early 20th century. I mean, that's broadly speaking what the 30, the second 30 years war was. 
um, you know, and so there's a dialectic within Germany that's manipulated. So you have the rise of Hitler, and of course his rise is very curious. The funding he got, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of those people who think that Hitler was a was an explicit British agent, but he did set Germany up, uh, you know, for the eventual fall, um, and he he took the bait at the very least and led to Germany's destruction as an independent power in Europe. Um, but the uh, that you know. Again, the whole idea that um, the Vatican's dealings with Hitler, its pragmatic approach, is somehow to be condemned. What were they to do anyway? And of course, you know, if you look at uh, uh, our ally, Stalin, uh, Hitler was far more tolerant of, of religions, you know, except masonry <laughs> in Germany, um, uh, than Stalin was, you know. And, um, it, you know, uh, uh, and look what uh, uh, I mean. Let's face it: if the Catholic Church, the United States, had come out, you know, uh, four, four square against America's entry into World War II, even after a declaration of war, what would the American state done to the American Catholic Church? All states act that way, right? What would happen? I mean, and 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 because uh, 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 American prelates are so a church, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, loyal Americanists, they they've support they've supported every war. World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, but you know, Spelman never said anything about Vietnam. You know, and there's a reason for that, <laughs> and it gets into, into a compromise. But um, so that's it, just one thing when you for being you know for controlling your religions or threatening religions, all governments do that. Now, you know, it's look at today. Now, government look at the U.S. government today, telling churches they can't open or putting these restrictions on it in complete violation of its own charter, its constitution. Yeah. Um, and I think we can <clears throat> continue that discussion in the second hour, getting into the 1960s and some of those dealings with Vietnam and uh, maybe a little bit more on the Jesuits. And then also want to get more into the, the P2 lodges and Operation Gladio. But um, before we head over to the second hour for the members, uh, I don't know if you wanted to let anybody know. Uh, what are the links? What are the best links to listen to our interesting times at and support you? Oh, you can just go to uh, my YouTube page, uh, which is what TH Kelly 67. That's our interesting times. And there's links to uh, Spreaker and also Podomatic. And then you can also find you can donate at the about page at, at YouTube and also on um, Patreon is open. Find it on the Patreon. And there I host my own podcast. And I also do a weekly show with Joe Atwell. And we, um, discuss you know weekly topics some are historical some are topical lately we've been uh, forced to do topical issues because of what's going on here in the united states and around the world with the attempted imposition of a technocratic slave state under the guise of a public health crisis excellent well i will put those in the links and we'll see everyone at the second hour who's a subscriber to gain access to the second hour Head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com. <laughs>